everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, I am so honored to introduce our guest speaker today. Marja Humphrey is just an amazing leader and teacher and friend. She is one of our fabulous group leaders here at Dig Deep on Tuesday mornings. Marja is an adjunct faculty for a variety of universities, including Johns Hopkins in the area of counseling. And she hosts a internet radio talk show with a friend of hers called On The Rise. So you'll have to look that up and follow her. They do a wonderful job interviewing guests and talking about God's word. So would you join me in welcoming Marja Humphrey? Thank you, Jess, for that warm welcome and this opportunity to speak here at Dig Deep. Good morning, ladies. It's so good to be with you. Um, let, let us just pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of opening your precious word. Please make these verses come alive in our hearts today. We are here to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jess said, this is our last meeting before Thanksgiving. And, you know, Thanksgiving is widely known as the most traveled time of the year. Well, when you travel... You have a variety of options, uh, different lodging options. So you can stay at a hotel, maybe you'll choose a bed and breakfast property, or you'll stay with family and friends at their homes. So hotels are typically newer, and they're chosen for their amenities and convenience to your business conference or pleasure sight-seeking, while bed and, bed, bed and breakfast properties are usually older homes featuring historic charm and character. My husband and I prefer bed and breakfasts for our anniversary trips because they are quaint, they're quiet, they offer a slower pace to savor each moment. Well, recently I spent two weeks on travel, and the first trip was to an international destination and I stayed in a hotel. The second trip was domestic and I stayed at a friend's home. And so while we have different lodging options and even my experiences with these destinations differed, what they had in common is the sense of fellowship. To put it simply, I was with my people and we were enjoying sweet times of fellowship and hospitality. So over several weeks, we've spent time considering how what we do is because of whose we are. God's mercy propels all of our identity and activity. We have progressed from God as our foundation to being the body and using our gifts to loving and honoring others. We learned last week how to be joyful, hopeful, patient, faithful, praying women. And this week, our question is, how are we to be present with others? We're looking at Romans 12, verse 13, and it says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And I really like the wording from the English Standard Version. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So you heard Jess say that I am a faculty member, and as an educator, I love definitions. So let's think about what it means to contribute. It means that we give along with others. And so in this passage, Paul wants us to recognize that there is a team effort required here. This past weekend, as a church, we participated in joyous giving. Everyone gave so that others might be able to enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas. 
A similar thing happened amongst the believers in Acts 2. They gave so that no one lacked anything they needed. Now, when we think about needs, sometimes we add things in there that aren't quite needs, like makeup, right? (laughs) But a need is something crucial to one's life. Food, clothing, shelter, love, transportation. The believers in Acts not only gave, but they studied the apostles' teachings together, and they ate together. This is the meaning of fellowship. They were in one another's lives. So the translation that we have, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, says practice hospitality. So what does that mean? It means do it repeatedly and with intention. I think about my children here because I make them practice their musical instruments 30 minutes every day. And we always say practice makes perfect, but I think According to our Lord, he would say that practice matures us. That's the biblical definition of perfect. So as we're being hospitable, that means we're to be friendly and cordial in our treatment of guests. We should seek to show hospitality. This means it's not happening by accident. We have to look for it, search for it, try to find it. Hospitality was very important for early Christians for most of them could not afford hotels and lodging houses when they traveled, but they depended on the provision of fellow believers. So, in other words, hospitality is what we would call the bed and breakfast I mentioned earlier. And one of the things that we do here at Grace is seek to provide an overwhelming welcome. For us today, I'm wondering how can we see needs in other people, potentially even before the other person is aware of that need themselves. I told you about two trips. So that second trip, I went to see my friends in Tampa and they hosted my friend and I um, with such warmth. We were picked up at the airport on our way to their home. They asked us if we were hungry, we stopped to get some food. Once we arrived at their home, they gave us a quick tour and then they offered us a choice of which bedroom we would use for the next few days. On the bed was an animal made from the bath towels. Crisp, fresh linens underneath an inviting white and silver duvet welcomed my travel-weary body to rest. The bathroom was thoughtfully stocked with a basket containing toiletry essentials, water, and granola bars. This was a spa-like, relaxing bed and breakfast getaway. While I've always known my friends to be generous and kind, I was blown away by their hospitality. We were treated to home-cooked gourmet meals and snacks, as well as driven to every destination. What a stress-free experience. Every detail had been taken care of, every need and desire anticipated and met. What a blessing. In fact, my luggage was lost, and that basket of toiletries, it held everything I needed. I slept so well during my visit and I left their home heading back to Maryland with a lighter heart and mind as a result of their care and fellowship. This this is just one example of hospitality. So how will you be generous and good to those in need? And if we look throughout the New Testament, hospitality is mentioned as a good work 
It's not something that we should neglect. And we are to show hospitality without grumbling because we are stewards of God's grace. Having received his grace, we freely give that grace to others. So just as a basket of toiletries or even some baked goods can be a blessing, our words can offer a blessing as well. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. To understand this verse a little bit better, let's go back and look at God's original use of the words bless or blessed. In general, we go back to Genesis and we find that blessing is an outgoing thing. The first mention of blessed is in Genesis 1:22. It is to be fruitful and multiply, to produce something. The first mention of bless is in Genesis 12, and it is the generational blessing that's given to Abram. When we think about the word bless, it means to consecrate or render holy. It is something that is beneficial or prosperous to give honor or glory to as something that is divine or holy. When we bless a person, we're calling upon God to protect them. And sometimes we talk about it as a benediction, or that means good words, to speak well of. When we think about blessed, it is the state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. Simply put, to bless means to speak well of. So to curse means to speak evil of. Why does God tell us to bless those who persecute you, to persecute us? I think there are three reasons here. Because this demonstrates his love. In Matthew 5, we hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I think the other reason is that when we love those and bless those who persecute us, we remember that they are made in God's image and after his likeness too. And the third reason is this is the method and evidence of maturing in the Lord. So blessing those who persecute us, blessing and not cursing, it seems so straightforward, but why are we given this instruction? Why does Paul reiterate these words in Romans 12? I think it's because Paul's not talking just about those specific words, but I think he's speaking more broadly about anything we say that can cause harm to another. He's saying that we need to be kind. So while our natural response when we're persecuted is to retaliate, and it feels really easy to curse our persecutors, this is not what Jesus teaches. We are to love our enemies. We're to bless and not curse. And I think of the verse in John 13 that says, the world will know we're Christians by our love. And if that's the case, then we must bless them. 
This blessing provides an opportunity for good to be sown and good to come out of them and us too as we're perfected and matured. Jars of Clay has that song called, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. And I just want to share a few of the lyrics with you. It echoes what we've been studying in Romans 12 quite well. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored. They'll know we're Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. They'll know we're Christians by our love. When we talk about these verses in Romans, the practice of hospitality and blessing rather than cursing, it will ultimately override our sin nature of focusing on ourselves and retaliating when attacked. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So let's start with the rejoicing part. Around here at Grace, everyone knows Mr. Vernon. And if you don't know him, you've heard him. His entire message is joy, especially how to have joy when circumstances would dictate otherwise. One commentary says, the joy that Paul calls for is not a happiness that depends on circumstances, but a deep contentment that is in the Lord based on trust in the sovereign living God. And that, therefore, is always available, even in, dif in difficult times. Mr. Vernon's joyous greeting at the front doors of the church remind me of Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. There are many indications of rejoicing in the Bible and occasions upon which we should rejoice. We can think about any type of celebration. And normally, rejoicing is expressed in visible ways, dancing, singing, playing musical instruments. In other words, rejoicing is worship. We worship as we remember the source of our rejoicing, Jesus, our salvation. In everyday life, there may be many times of celebration, weddings, babies being born, promotions, salvations, baptisms, other successes, graduations, at these moments, we are showing empathy and sharing the joy that is inside of us with the others and the joy that is inside of them. So if you've been a believer for any length of time, you may have seen the acronym JOY, Jesus, others, you. The point here is that Jesus is the foundation and center of our joy, and then others are the recipient of that joy. I think we need to remember as well that we cannot have joy if we're constantly looking inward. We must look upward and share outward. Yet I love how no part of life has escaped God's attention, and the Bible presents the contrast for us. There's nothing we deal with that Jesus himself didn't experience. Let me offer an analogy here. Joy is to praise report as mourn is to prayer request. Mourning is as familiar as joy, yet qualitatively different. Mourning, defined as our reaction to loss, is usually used in reference to death or separation. When one is mourning, it is common to lament, wail, and feel sorrowful. In Bible times, it was the custom for a person in mourning to put on sackcloth 
and sprinkle ashes or shave their head. Mourning was just as visible as rejoicing. Ecclesiastes says that there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. God wants us to know that none of this has escaped his attention. But whether we are rejoicing or mourning, we are simply experiencing life with another person. We are offering the power of presence. We are feeling for another, coming alongside them. We see many examples of Jesus having compassion on people. As his disciples, we are commanded to carry on his work of compassion and empathy at all times and in every occasion. There are those moments when rejoicing and mourning seem to even overlap. Recently, I had the opportunity to see a young man off to basic training as he enlisted in the Air Force. We were simultaneously rejoicing and mourning, rejoicing his adulthood, the decision that he had made to serve his country, and yet mourning the loss of being in face-to-face -face relationship with him every day. As we're mourning, even at this joyous occasion, it was a recognition of how life is sometimes interrupted and disrupted, how sometimes harmony is temporarily displaced. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. When I hear the word harmony, I immediately think of music. In music, harmony is the combination of simultaneously sounded notes to produce chords that have a pleasing effect. So in life, we might substitute the word agreement for harmony. And some of those synonyms are peace, friendship, cooperation, understanding, unity. In music and life in general, the key here is that harmony is achieved by various elements working together, producing a pleasing effect. Earlier, we saw this teamwork aspect in sharing with the Lord's people in verse 13. Now, here's that working together idea again. God is definitely trying to tell us something. While harmony is easily understood, it can be very challenging to live out in real life. Harmony is not a kumbaya moment. It rarely occurs effortlessly in everyday interactions, and it often comes after many missteps and apologies. Harmony requires an intentional investment and willingness to forgive. And we need to live in harmony with our families, our parents, siblings, spouses, children, our coworkers, supervisors, and others, and other friends from maybe team sports or our small group. But what are the impediments to harmonious living? The Bible helps us to understand harmony by contrasting it with pride and conceit. So we know that humility is the way to harmony. Harmony is broken when we are proud, having a high or excessively high opinion of ourselves or our importance, or when we're dealing in conceit, vanity, narcissism, egotism, self-admiration, self-regard, self-satisfaction, and sometimes even smugness. To say it another way, 
We threaten the harmony among us when we focus on ourselves too much. Proverbs has plenty to say about pride. In Proverbs 8, we read, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Translation, pride is a setup for bad. So we must examine our hearts and guard against what God hates. This, too, is sometimes easier said than done because part of the nature of pride is its deception. I've been searching my own heart for those instances when pride creeps in and steals the show. How or when do I think I am better than fill in the blank? We never admit to this feeling, yet again, sometimes that's because pride is subtle. But following the encouragement to live in harmony is do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Could pride possibly reflect some unwillingness on our behalf? Let's remember Romans 12, verse 3, that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but rather think of ourselves with sober judgment. This is humility in action. When we talk about the low position, we will typically think of a servant. But in our culture, we don't have a lot of servants. As I tell my kids when we go out to eat, they are a server, not a servant. So we speak to them with respect. But let me ask that question. Are we willing to associate with others that may be in a low position? As an example, do you know the name of the people that are in service positions in the building where you work? Do you honor them by conversing with them as you would with any other coworker? Because they are just as much a part of the team that makes that business happen as anyone else. The other question is, are we willing to occupy the low position? Are we willing to be the person in that low position? Kathy taught so eloquently a couple of weeks ago, are we willing to be the unseen wind beneath the wings of another, the wind that allows them to soar? Will we willingly give ourselves to humble tasks? Even last week, Stacia shared with us about some humble tasks, but how she met God in those tasks. So if we are to live the Romans 12 life, we need to say an enthusiastic yes. I want to close by saying in each verse today, these are not simply suggestions. They are imperatives. An imperative is a statement that gives a command. God is anything but unclear, and he's left none of us out. We are all to share, bless, rejoice, mourn, and associate with others and occupy that low position. We're to demonstrate his love in action by our ministry of presence. Can we pray together that we would be more obedient to God's command? Father, we're so grateful for this day and we thank you for your word. You have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As we are transformed, 
Help us by your spirit to share the work you have done in us with another. That in our homes, workplaces, communities, and world, others would know we are Christians by our love. Quiet us. Slow us so that we may listen to you as you prompt us to share your love and grace with others in tangible ways. Help us to provide an overwhelming welcome as hospitable women. May we speak words of blessing and not cursing, words that give life and build up, rather than words that are foolish and tear down. Thank you for the privilege to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and celebrating over what you have done, hearts overflowing because of your goodness. And at the same time, give us the grace to sit in silence as needed with those who are mourning and offer the ministry of presence. What a responsibility to be with people in difficult times. Please manifest the fruit of the spirit in our hearts, our mouths, our homes, and our lives. We know there is power in your presence and we love you. Thank you for loving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.